right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 127. We're talking to you about college football in a kind of abbreviated fashion because we're in the doldrums of the offseason. My name is Bobak Hayeri. I'm your host. Love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on college football. You can always hit request in the bottom left and I'll let you up on stage and we can have a chat. It's always good to hear from you and, and hear what your thoughts are on the goings on in another fine week of the off season. Let's see, just going to go get off one quick tweet to let people know how they can hit request. So yeah, as we're heading into this off season, there's a couple of interesting stories that have been popping up this week. I'll be happy to kind of go over some of the highlights on RCFB, but at, at any time you'd like to join in, just hit request and we'll hear from you. Some of the things that struck me, well, obviously we just had President's Day and one of the annual traditions we like to do on RCFB, but mostly as well on Reddit CFB on Twitter, is honor those presidents who played college football to some regard. Some of them didn't necessarily get varsity letters, but many of them did. Well, not many, but a good chunk of them did play. Um, specifically, the college football pre playing presidents that we always like to honor, Dwight Eisenhower, who was at Army. An injury kind of cut short his career there, but we kind of went a little bit of out of order here. Ronald Reagan played at a small college in Iowa, which he was originally from before moving to California, becoming an actor and governor, and then, of course, president at Eureka College. So Ronald Reagan was actually a college football player himself at Eureka College. Richard Nixon, who actually, and, you know, he's obviously got a complicated history as a president, but in his younger days, he was a smart kid. He stayed in the kind of remote, what was then more of a remote part of Southern California he was from, uh, his family had a farm in um, kind of east of Orange County. And when his dad was getting sick, actually they had a store as well. He stayed to help him with the store rather than go to Duke. So he went to Whittier, which is a small college that unfortunately just dropped football. They had one of the best names. They were the Whittier Poets. But he played for them. He was a bench warmer for the most part. But everyone is always shocked when they see his college football photo. He's one of the more handsome ones <laughs> in his younger days. And then you can't his, you know, Gerald Ford is probably the best college football player who ever served as president. He was a stud at Michigan and looks tough as hell if you ever look up some of his college football playing days. JFK was he only was on the JV squad, but I looked up the uh, the old Harvard yearbook. And he did, he was on a JV squad back when those were more common. There are still JV squads out there at JUCO level, some of the lower divisions, NAIA has them. And then one last college football playing president, which we always, uh, which we'd forgotten about before. Jimmy Carter, who we know is in hospice care right now. He played sprint football at Navy, at the Naval Academy. Sprint football is just like regular football. It's just designed for smaller build people. You have to blow a certain weight. And the academies are dynamite at it. Army and Navy are the, probably the two strongest sprint football teams because everyone at the academies is basically built solid for playing football at that kind of that, that lower weight level and lower weight limit with that sheer athleticism so many of those those folks at the academies possess. So those are the six college football playing presidents, not all of them lettered, but all of them were on rosters at one point or another. So that was one of those topics that we kind of brought up um, earlier this week. Again, if you'd like to join this conversation about anything college football, 
just hit request. Would love to let you up. We'll hear from you. Um, some other interesting news this week. One of the, uh, the ongoing sagas, and maybe some of you want to talk about this, is watching what's going on with the Pac-12 media rights situation. There were a couple of articles uh, earlier in the week. Actually, I should say uh, last week. Um, Sports Business Journal, those guys do a lot of great work. We've, we've had a couple of them as guests, both um, as AMAs as well as Twitter space guests. They had an interesting podcast where they were talking about the state of Pac-12 media rights. And they ended their segment with things are not looking good for the Pac-12 network from a linear perspective. When we're talking linear, again, with media rights, we're talking about being on, you know, what we'd call legacy television, being on cable. And basically they were saying the Big 12 renewing their deal with ESPN and Fox kind of took the last big deal off the market in that Fox really isn't interested in getting involved with the Pac-12 media rights unless they get a deal for pennies on the dollar. Amazon is theoretically out there, but they're very picky. They only want the top game each week and not the uh, the Pac-12 network games on Prime or anything like that. And and to their credit, they said um, w- it, last week, late last week, Sports Business Journal identified that Apple TV was rumored as a third party interested in the deal. But we'll get to that in a moment. They're considered a little bit weaker because they're a streamer, not a linear network like an ESPN or Fox Sports or CBS Sports Network. All of those have a bit more cachet as linear networks available on cable providers. None of the other big sports names are interested in the Pac-12 media network, according to Sports Business Journal. That includes TNT, CBS, NBC. Meanwhile, at Disney, Bob Iger reiterated on an earnings call that ESPN is going to have to cut back and on what it pays for and writes and pick up on things that they feel are more selective. So kind of building on this kind of Pac-12 network story, that's, or I should say Pac-12 media deal story, Brett McMurphy followed up also uh, about six days ago that CBS and Turner are no longer involved in the Pac-12's media rights negotiations. Again, reinforcing what was said by Sports Business Journal. However, you know, today, you know, one of the interesting stories, again, it's out of the Post, uh, New York Post, Apple emerges as a potential landing spot for Pac-12 football. So this is a curious situation. We're seeing one of the P5 struggling to find a, a network deal, which is, is fascinating because these aren't small markets. Even though, yeah, they've lost USC and UCLA, the marquee programs in terms of being in the LA market. And we'll talk a little bit more. Um, and of course, if you'd like to join the conversation here, request. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Pac-12's look at expansion right now. But they still possess the Bay Area. They still possess, you know, Seattle, Portland. Um, you know, they still have some access to Southern California and interest. So it's not a tiny footprint, especially, you know, you've got Denver, Salt Lake City, not quite the same cachet as some of those now Big Ten network areas with Chicago, L.A., and the New York metropolitan area. But it's interesting to watch the Pac-12 network struggle in this time to try and find a replacement um certainly apple would be an interesting choice um apple tv is fairly popular as an online streaming but i'm not sure if they're going to have the right audience for the pac-12 we'll have to see but this is one of those ongoing stories and it's fascinating to watch the reactions on our cfb as well as twitter to these kinds of stories you know, Colorado, probably a Washington fan, <laughs> uh, incarnate zebra. Actually, I love his his reaction was just fade me. 
uh, th- this is this is this is not a good story, you know. And I have to say, you know, in reaction, some people have asked if PBS might be interested in a Pac-12 media rights deal. You know, Masterpiece Theater producing Pac-12 content could be an instant watch. And credit to 1969 on that one. That was that's probably one of my favorite ideas of what potential there could be. And, and FSU Noel 77 potential game-winning two-minute drive narrated by David Attenborough would be really exciting. So, you know, maybe that they should try it, so like something like that. And, you know, the, the real sad point for all of this are the two programs that seem to be stuck, no matter where the Pac-12 ends up. Oregon State and Washington State, you know, Sturge 22, put it best as an Oregon State fan, I hate it here because they are struggling to figure out where they're going to land. And, and right now, who knows, maybe it might be Apple TV at this rate. Speaking of the Pac-12, a couple of different stories. Again, they've been kind of heavy on that this week on our CFB as well as in kind of college football news. And again, if you'd like to talk about any topic in college football, feel free to hit request. We'd love to hear from you on Tuesday nights. We just sort of hear from you and or talk about the topics of the day. My name is Bob Akairi. This is our CFB Talk 127. But heading back into the Pac-12, the other hot topic is, of course, how they're going to expand or if they're going to expand. But it seems almost certain in this past week and a half that we've started here that it the Pac-12 University and, and the Pac-12 universities and, and through Mountain West Wire, it appears they approve the next steps in trying to approach San Diego State and Southern Methodist as part of the expansion process to kind of rebuild the conference and its, its footprint in major markets. San Diego State, after USC and UCLA, is probably easily the strongest program in terms of market reach in Southern California. San Diego itself, fairly large city. It's got a metro of about four or five million. It's obviously not the LA area, which is a metro of close to, well, depending on how you cut it, 17 million or more. But it does reach up north. Um, Actually, still, it's humorous to remember that San Diego State played two seasons in the the southern reaches, the southern reaches of Los Angeles in uh, Carson when they were building Snapdragon Stadium after they demolished Qualcomm. So they actually had played as a home stadium in the L.A. area. Does it have the same reach as the two Pac-12 schools? No. Uh, Pardon me, as the two L.A. schools? No. But does it add to the Pac-12 reach and bring it back into Southern California? Yes, and why is that important? Certainly the recruiting in Southern California has always been strong. Um, Some people have said it's perhaps eroded a little bit, especially compared to the ascendancy of some of these hotbeds in the South, which have always been strong, but have really only deepened, and and Texas, of course. But it would add to that. And and SMU joining the Pac-12 seems like a reasonable idea because bringing in the Metroplex, obviously TCU has, there was a long time where TCU and SMU were more equal in that metro in terms of where they were and um uh but adding them both pardon me adding smu will give suddenly the pac-12 a a beachhead in big 12 country you know we have someone who wants to join the conversation about whatever you'd like so harry james taylor just feel free to unmute would love to hear from you uh thanks guys first of all great great i enjoy doing this every week first of all secondly and I know that this isn't really part of the part of what y'all are talking about right now, but what if they were to join the rest of the Big Twelve, and something would were, were to that were to happen? Uh, I think that that would that would totally benefit both teams. It would give Utah somebody to kind of play with on the what on the uh, what would that be the East Coast, and because 
I, I can see that see them adding San Diego State and Southern Methodist, but that really wouldn't add anything like uh, power wise. You know what I'm saying? Contender wise, I would yeah. think. You know, and it's interesting too because you always wonder: is, is it a chicken or egg thing with, with when you're bringing someone up from you know one of the the G5 conferences? Because TCU, when they came up, they they had a few seasons where they were really good. And in fact, maybe they're not even the best comparison because I'm thinking of Utah. I'm thinking of TCU. Both of them had, I mean, Utah had been the, the original BCS buster when that was a thing, when they, uh, they had that 2005 season and went to the Fiesta Bowl. But at the same, so they had proven themselves a bit before they joined the Pac-12. And TCU as well was a strong Mountain West program. SMU has been kind of a contender. They've always kind of been in the background. Um, now, how much of that was the head coach who just took TCU to the national championship is a whole other question. But I agree with you. But at the same time, hopefully they will see. Um, uh, I mean, the, the idea is they'll see that increase in funds. Of course, the Pac-12 and Big, Tw- and Big 12 are not going to be able, and to a lesser extent, the ACC are not going to be able to compete at the level the Big 10 and SEC are at right now. But they they could you know hopefully level up facilities and and what they can do there. But I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, and but the trick is who else do you add? My favorite, by the way, the other side note is, and I'm you know they had to go ahead and put out Dennis Dobb uh, at CBS had to confirm that Rice is not in the mix for the Pac-12 as of now. And while they're in Houston, that one would have been a speaking of of teams that wouldn't necessarily be powered up. That would have been a tall order. For the Rice Owls to join the Pac-12 and expect them to be able to to even compete at that level, I think San Diego State and SMU have had glimpses of that, and San Diego State is certainly invested in their program. That Snapdragon Stadium, by all accounts, other than unfortunately it had the worst debut of any stadium at probably in, in quite a few years, not necessarily of all time, but by all accounts, people who've been to games since that disastrous opener. Uh, either as fans or in the press box, have said it's it's a wonderful facility. So they've they've got something going there. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, now Harry, who would you consider adding to the Pac-12 if you were trying to to broaden its reach? Um, well, to be honest, I don't really think you can add that much over there um, because I think a lot of the I think a lot of the power is is already taken. Or uh, our old uh, our old buddy Lincoln, who did so much good, so good at Oklahoma, now going to U uh, now at USC and all that. He he's now going to be hitting the road again to uh, with UCLA, obviously. But to to kind of replace those teams, there's not really a team out there, really, and that's really the whole problem that I'm trying to wrap my head around here. Yeah, um, absolutely. Unless it's- you want to, you know, unless you want to do it like what you're saying and kind of bring somebody up like a. From from a lower division like a Boise State or something like that, but but again, oh, I agree with you, and and I think when they're trying to figure that out, instead of kind of focusing too much on the football program, because Boise State certainly has a lot of success in its history, I think really what they're looking at is trying to restore some of the TV money as well, because Boise State's always its biggest problem is it's in a really, I mean, it's just not a hugely populated area. Its TV market isn't very big. 
Um, while San Diego State, and it's so funny too, it's the same benefit of Rutgers. Like it's like it's Rutgers really pulling the New York market with them. I'm not sure we can credibly say it's a big significant number um, that Rutgers does bring, but it does give access to that market. So it's kind of like the Rutgers argument. You're bringing, you know, a school in San Diego that kind of has access also to LA as kind of a, it's certainly close enough that it, it has some some reach over there, but at least you're bringing a major metropolitan area, but especially SMU right in the heart of Dallas, you're bringing in another major metropolitan area that you could theoretically get a footprint for the rest. So I think that's how they're looking at it. It's like Boise state's neat and everything, but the San Diego state and, and so the Methodist markets are just so much potentially larger. I think that's why anyone even tossed out the rumor that however true it was or not, that rice would be in, on plate, but Rice just as a program is, doesn't really bring enough, I think, for them to be credible. Um, as, a, as Just as a program, I think they would require way too much of a radical overhaul of where they're at. While SDSU and SMU kind of at least have put together enough of the starting point where you could add on to it. And presumably, I mean, both programs obviously are probably really strongly interested in that. I think it was, um, oh goodness, where was that? that uh, um, yeah, Jason Shear. At a swim and dive championship banquet in Houston yesterday, this is from several days ago, the San Diego State Athletic Director told people that the Aztecs are going to be joining the Pac-12 and it will be announced soon. So for the most part, it seems all arrows say that they're going to join the Pac-12. And my mind, it's got to be all about that TV footprint at this point and the fact that those programs at least have some some facilities built out. I mean, the only other one that might be interesting, but I think, again, they're kind of, they're, they're not quite where Rice is in the sense that they haven't really focused quite at the level of football, but they're just, they've had such a history of being unsuccessful. Um, would be UNLV, only because Las Vegas could be interesting. Um, Las Vegas is always an oddball market. Like, until the, we really saw the pro teams start to finally move there, it was always considered a territory in the way they would kind of cut it up of LA, as odd as that is to seem. Famously, the Dodgers um, would, and even the Raiders would get really angry if anyone threatened to move a team, or not threatened, but thought of moving a team there because they, they said, we will sue you. This is our market. You, in the way they kind of divide up the country in some of the pro leagues. But when the uh, NHL moved there, that kind of opened the door. Obviously, the Raiders are there now, too. So UNLV is in a decent market. They now have access to an amazing stadium, but... Um, I think they're still just a little too – they just haven't had a whole lot of success. So I think that makes them a little less attractive. But they're about the only other team out west that seems to have a potential there. But but I don't see them sure. – yeah. I think it was real interesting. And, and, you know, all this came out just a year ago. I think it was really big that three, two or three years ago, that's when uh, we, as far as Oklahoma, announced that us in Texas – or actually it was A&M that kind of – did what they did kind of squeamishly, but they kind of released it. They did what they did. And, and then the Big 12, the rest of the Big 12 kind of got together and says, you know, this is what we're going to do about it. Because what they ended up doing is they ended up getting BYU. I think that that would be, I think that that would be a great issue for the Pac-12 if they would have known this whole oh, thing. Oh, yes. But now they're going to be in the Big 12. Oh, the that, BYU. That would get yeah, BYU long coveted joining the Pac-12, and that would have been perfect for Utah because the Holy War would have probably been would have a- absolutely been an annual thing. Uh, the Colorado, the kind of forced Colorado Utah rivalry was neat, but it was never really that passionate. The two teams kind of liked each other. It was. I think I remember the first time they were going to play. One of the coaches, 
And I don't know if he just made it up or what, but he, he brought a broken bicycle and said somebody from the other team broke his kid's bicycle and they were trying to create some drama. It was utterly comical. And then those two fans' bases just kind of got along. They were like, hey, you know, we're the two oddball mountain teams in the Pac-12. Um, but yeah, no, BYU would have been, they would have loved to have been a part of the Pac-12. But hey, you know what? Sometimes when you don't, the girl who wants to join, if you don't, if you don't put a ring on it, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that was so now suddenly suddenly Cal isn't acting wouldn't have started because the historical thing was, I believe Cal was the program that was the least amenable to having BYU. That's the rumor. That was like if you went back 20 years ago, that would always be how they kind of say it. it's like, oh, Cal, they don't want to deal with it. It's it's a clash of the, the, the you know, they would have been the only religious school, you know, blah, blah, blah. They don't play on Sundays, blah, blah, blah. You know, all that stuff that was kind of thrown out there. But. Ultimately, they have a national following. They're a decent enough program, and they care about football. Hey, Big 12 made the right move, and, and they were the ones willing to pull that trigger. And now the Pac-12 is, again, totally desperate there. You know, we have someone else up here. And, and again, whatever the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Thack, it's good to see you again. Yo, what's up, fellas? Hey. Hey, man. I just want to talk about these rule changes. Uh, y'all see that? Uh, what, what, what are you, uh, what are your thoughts on the potential rule changes to slim down the game a little bit? You know, uh, I, I'm on the fence. Uh, you, you, you never really lived until you've watched four hours of a Texas football game. Uh, I forget what it was this most recent year. It was Texas for somebody, a rock fight. It was four hours long and it was not, there was like no other interesting games on, uh, you know, what, what do you think about shortening down, uh, shortening down these, uh, some snaps, shortening down the plays, man, get rid of the damn TV timeouts if they want. Yeah, to, no, I hear you. That. I mean, that's the number one thing I think everyone would rather just cut down on media timeout that sort of slows things to a halt. You see, especially if you're live at a game and you see that one guy walk on the field, like roughly was like the 30 yard line. And you know, that's because it's a TV timeout. He's there. So the refs can see him. And, you know, it gives the hand signals like the for to kind of signal when the game can actually start again. The person who's really in charge of the game, the one who could actually stop it is that one guy from the network who walks on the field and, and tells him to stop. No, I the problem is ultimately they're the ones that pay all the big bucks that let all this happen. So unfortunately, that isn't it. And I. Man, I hear you. I'm not a huge fan of cutting down the games that much. I'm not worried that it'll necessarily ruin it. Because I think that's a bit of a that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, if everyone's on the same playing field, you know, it it shouldn't cause too much chaos. Of course, it's always what'll always happen is that first year someone will figure out a way if there is a way to game the rules in, in such a way that'll cause them to adjust it the following season. I still remember it was Brett Bielema when he was at Wisconsin who figured out the way that when they changed the rules one year, the way they would start the clock. He figured out that if he kept taking penalties, he could run out a clock for an extended period of time against Penn State. And to the that was back when Joe Pa was at Penn State, and he was just furious. <laughs> but you know, you as a hey, my background's a lawyer. If you know how to lawyer the rules, I mean, hey, respect for me on that one. But so who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll see something like that. Someone will figure out how to trick the game and, to do that. Hey, Harry, you were about to say something there. Sorry, I cut you off. No, I, I- no, I'm, I'm. It's go, it's all good. I just think it, that it's really funny that these that, that that these kind of rules are about to uh, very well take place in the next two or three years, and how we're about to go join the SEC in two or three years. That's just kind of 
And Nick Saban's in on this too. Nick Saban's the one that doesn't like the the get, no go huddle. You, you know, you step out of bounds and the time stops the clock. He's the one that didn't like it in the first place. And I just think it's kind of funny that he's the one that didn't like it in the first place. And here comes Oklahoma and Texas, two of the better teams that do it, and they're about to join the SEC. Huh. Hey, so we got a we got an Oklahoma fan in here joining the SEC. Hey, man, where's the peace pipe? Y'all lost it now. Bring back the peace pipe now, baby. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but man, I was watching uh the XFL right. See from St. Louis here. Uh, we we're we're not real real fond of the NFL anymore. We got the XFL. Man, I I didn't even notice at first until somebody pointed out it was a much more enjoyable football game to watch. And I'll tell you why. And it wasn't necessarily because the clock was sped up uh, and they've done, they've done all that. They've engineered it to come out to about two hours and uh, you walk away from that uh, just realizing that they didn't do an ad after the damn kickoff. They didn't do a two minute ad after the kickoff, every kickoff, which was fascinating. I didn't realize until somebody pointed out, but uh, there was a lot less, uh, television ads and the clock was a little bit faster and it, it was definitely a more enjoyable watch but but when I think about it man I, I love those four hour plug fest that you're just you're watching and you're like holy this game is never going to end you know my Saturday is extended basically it feels like I think you've hit the kind of the the two sides of the coin because both are enjoyable you know the XFL I think yeah it was like their opener was like Two hours and 45 minutes. But at the same time, you know, if you're really kind of, I think most kind of hardcore college football fans, and I think a lot of the people that are sticking around in the offseason to listen to a Twitter space about college football kind of fit into that. So you all, you're all honorary members if you weren't already. But they're the folks that would do enjoy. Like, I enjoy. I don't mind if it's a long game, if it's a good game. Granted, as long as we're not talking about too many timeouts um, or too many media timeouts. But, you know, sometimes games are in CBS and, and ads must be heard. But I, I would like to see some of these rule changes make sense. The idea of reducing, I think, was the number of consecutive timeouts. That, that one, I think, would be popular. I think one of the things, and I read some good analysis. There's a good article on The Athletic by Andy Staples where he kind of reviews the rules. And I agree with a lot of what he had to say. But one of the things he pointed out is the XFL has also shown that you can make a replay a lot faster. And that's one of those, I think, time sinks in the college football you know, in the college football world where, you know, some like a review of a review. I still remember the first time I ever saw that live in person it was many years ago, but I was at, you know, the Coliseum and then there was a review of a review and I timed it. We were, there was no football for like almost 30 minutes. Um, that was a yeah, it was a long time ago. I think Bilotti was still at Oregon, but the, uh, yeah. So I think if we can reduce that, that would be a huge part of it. Maybe having a more dynamic, the other suggestion, the other suggestion Andy had, which I thought was great, is also you can cut down on the time to kind of give plays if they finally get around to allowing mics in the helmets like the NFL, for, uh, especially to call plays. And then he actually points out you wouldn't have the ridiculous sheets on the sideline to block play calling from people seeing it. But at the same time, it would speed it would speed it up. You'd be able to get plays on the field quicker. The game would theoretically move a whole lot faster. I think the reason, and he, I didn't even know about this. I admit, I feel dumb for not knowing this. One of the problems with bringing in uh, helmet radios was it may negate the warranty or, or something about some of the helmets. But as Andy points out, with all the, the sheer number of helmets 
college football programs purchase in you know across all of FBS FCS would certainly go along with it as well. They can easily just say no. This needs to be part of it, and there will be a helmet manufacturer that says yes, sir. How, how <laughs> do you just tell us, and we'll happily send you sell all the thousands of helmets that would be required to uh, to equip the uh, the FBS programs that would need it. So, I think those are some of the better ones, and I will s- that again. Those were Andy's the staples of suggestions, but I think it's interesting. I think I would like to see it. I wouldn't mind. I don't know if I'm. I think you hit it on again. Thack hit the nail on the head. XFL has been managing to put games under three hours, closer to two and a half hours that have been enjoyable. So you can make it work. You can make it quick. I don't know if we all want to see college football quite that short, especially if you're going to a game, and especially if it's a game that's like you go to the city, you go through your tailgating, you know, the tradition, all the stuff, fun stuff. Some of us have got kind of conditioned to enjoy kind of a long, at least a three or four hour experience. Maybe not four hours, but three and a half hours. But you know, again, the other the other argument I've heard is at least it means hopefully your game won't end up on ESPN News, which I'm convinced ESPN News still exists as the overflow channel because oh, I, I could come up with lots of other things to put on it. I mean, if we really wanted to have fun, I mean, in spring, I think in like May over in Japan, they're going to have their spring football league. Why not put that on ESPN News at 11 p.m. Eastern? What else are they going to show on there for crying out loud? Just use the Japanese announcers. Don't even translate it. People will get a kick out of it. It's those guys are entertaining. I don't speak Japanese. Watching them call Japanese football, it's like li- listening to soccer in Mexican Spanish. It's like you're just like, oh my god, this is the way you hear the sport. There you know. Whoever knew Japanese is exciting to listen to college football. Uh, that's the things you learn when you when you get to be kind of in the sicko range, um, as some of us here. But yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting one. You know, this is an off season kind of doldrums edition of our CFB talk. When we get to this point, we've been trying to cut these down at least for a couple of weeks, down to 30 minutes to try and experiment. So it has been 30 minutes. So I'm going to start wrapping it up here. I just wanted to thank Harry and Thack for being up here there. It was great to have some some ideas when we we're talking about, oh, Pac-12 expansion and, and trying to cut down on the time of the game. But we do these every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. And we'll try to bring in guests again. I keep saying that and it keeps just being busy because it's the opposite. It's so funny right after the national championship, I swear everyone's like, you know what? This is my chance to kind of catch up with life. <laughs> so and my coworkers are doing, my, my usual co-hosts are doing the same right now, but on behalf of myself, Bob Akairi, on behalf of all of us at RCFB and Reddit CFB, thanks so much for joining us this Tuesday night. This turns into recording as soon as we're done. And now I'm a hang up and listen.